From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. Russia's war on Ukraine has starkly demonstrated just how quickly munitions are expended in modern conflicts. We'll be joined by the author of a thoughtful new report examining that challenge in detail and how one Air National Guard unit is trying to inspire a new generation of scientists and airmen. And it's all powered by GE Aerospace. GE Aerospace is developing the next generation of fighter aircraft engines to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. The XA-100 is tested and ready for the F-35. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash XA-100. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage and Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. JJ, what's in the news on All Wings Considered? Well, first, Vago, is a follow-up on a story we talked about last week, which involved the coming drop in F-35 deliveries. Need to clarify that just a bit, because yes, while it looks like those deliveries this year will go from 153 to 156 down to 100 to 120, that's deliveries. The production line is going to keep running at the same rate. So if you are a supplier to the F-35, you're going to sell just as many parts this year as you expected to. It's just that once the jets come off the line, they're going to be parked until they get the full technical refresh free package and then moved on to other countries. And we've seen countries like Belgium already coming out and saying, yeah, we're going to wait to take the jets that we were expecting to get. Watch for other countries to join them in that. However... Also in F-35 news this week, the production ceiling has been confirmed at 156 for the next few years, in fact, through 2030. As we've talked about, Vago, the limiting factor was said to be center fuselage production. That's what was keeping it at 156, even as the orders climbed to rates that would be well above that in order to satisfy. So why they went to all the trouble of qualifying Rheinmetall as a second supplier for center fuselages if they're only going to make as many as they were intending to beforehand is a bit baffling. It's called, JJ, industrial offset. <laughs> well, I would br- rather have jets on the ramp offset, if that's okay. Look, after Azerbaijan was inducted into the Khan fifth-generation combat aircraft program from Turkey, they are planning to begin negotiations to bring Pakistan in. So you have the prospect of Azerbaijan, Turkey, and Pakistan working together on an aircraft. That's rather unprecedented. Although I will admit that the main reason that we're talking about this is so that we get to say, Khan! The Japanese Ministry of Defense is considering using its Kawasaki C-2 tactical transports to launch missiles out the back of the cargo bay. It's not entirely a new idea. It is for other countries. The U.S. has played with this. But it's really interesting to see other countries start to pick up with it and more ways of adding complications to possible adversaries in the Asia-Pacific. And stop me if you heard this one, Vago, but the United States Air Force has set a retirement date for the U-2. It's 2026. I wouldn't count on that, though. That plane has come out of retirement more times than Michael Jordan. So we may have the Dragon Lady to kick around a while longer than we think. 
a lot to discuss there, right? On the uh, F-35 center fuselage, right? We've discussed this on the business uh, podcast where Sash Tuesday of agency partners has sort of made clear that these are really sort of German fuselages at the end of the day. And uh, the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. military really does want to get to the uh, future block of airplanes. We discussed that with Greg Ulmer uh, a little bit earlier. So even 156 is a pretty robust rate to be building uh, these airplanes at. So that anybody who's looking at the F-35 and seeing it as a kind of a short-term blip as everybody sort of moves, uh, you know, either to NGAD and FAXX, uh, I think is a little overly optimistic. You still have to fill out force structure. If the Air Force is buying 178, the United States Navy is, is maybe going to be buying fewer FAXXs at that kind of a, a price point, even though we don't know exactly what the Navy wants. Whatever the Navy wants is going to be pretty similar likely to what the Air Force wants. You still have to fill out four structures so that I think the F-35 becomes something that's that's important over a prolonged uh, period of time. An interesting development, aside from having to say, Quran, it is certainly going to be interesting <laughs> to see where Turkey, Pakistan, and Azerbaijan go uh, with the, the program. And, and at the moment, you know, that is a little bit of a rogues gallery trying to pursue the program. So it will be interesting uh, to watch despite Erdogan's, you know, outreach and and sort of realizing that he might be actually part of NATO. The C2 is a fascinating program if, uh, for anybody who's seen the jet. I mean, it is pretty amazing airplane volume wise uh, and power wise. And I you could certainly see how the Japanese would try to take maximum advantage of uh, the program. And lastly, on your U2 point, Everybody thinks I'm just a mindless supporter of the U2 because I was honored to have a high flight about a dozen or so years ago. My support for the program has nothing to do with the fact that I think it's really cool and flew on it. More, it no other airplane is able to do what it is that the U2 does, whether it's in terms of its altitude, whether it's its power generation, its Lego-like ability to assemble sensors to do very specific applications. You know, the, the Global Hawk was supposed to replace it. It doesn't go high enough. It doesn't produce enough power. I would think, though, that this time the plane's number may be up because I think that at this point there was nothing that would replace it. And the Air Force has been, uh, as you know, working on a replacement for some time. And my bet is that that replacement is in the offing, is all I'll say. That's my sense, that this time uh, it may be time for the airplane to gracefully bow out. And, you know, 1955 was its in-service date. It has served admirably, even though not in its original guise. So that, that would be my sense. It might get a reprieve, though, because it still can do things that no other airplane can. But my bet would be the Air Force reaching for that lever this time means it might actually have figured out what it wants to be the Dragon Lady to. Quite possibly true, although it may be an F-117 style retirement where they're officially retired, but yet they keep turning up places. But if the U-2 does finally go away, it will mean that the C-130 is the last Kelly Johnson design in operation with the U.S. Air Force. That's very true, uh, right? It, it does end up becoming uh, the last airplane. And for those of us who were lovers of the SR-71, right, really astonishing that the SR went out and the U-2 just kept, you know, the airplane that was supposed to succeed the U-2 ends up staying in service, just like I think the B-52 will likely outlive the B-2 and the B-1, <laughs> which I think is just utterly fascinating. If it weren't fascinating, we wouldn't be doing this. But now we'll get on to the meat of the program. Indeed. 
And joining us now is Colonel Glenn Weir. He is the Mission Support Group Commander of the 106th Rescue Wing at Gabreski Air National Guard Base in West Hampton, New York, affectionately known as the Sons of the Beach. The unit has hosted an extraordinary week-long STEM program for local kids, and uh, this is his brainchild, and he's joining us today, sir. Welcome to the program. It's an honor having you on. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here, and I, I appreciate the opportunity to share our story. I should say we have family who lives out there, so I'm very familiar with the unit. When I was at Air Force Times, I covered you guys repeatedly over the years, and you know, I have to say that even with our kids, there was uh, some green engagement that the, the base has done over the years, and we're going to talk a little bit about that as well. So it was an amazing week. Talk a little bit about the event and the inspiration and what it is you guys are trying to accomplish. You know, we've been kind of ramping up our community outreach over the past few years, trying to bring civic leaders, guidance counselors out to the base, as well as JROTC kids. And on one particular event, we were going to put a flight on for some guidance counselors. And one of my recruiters asked to put some, um, some students from one of the local high schools on there, BOCES. So, so when we researched that, the answer was no, they didn't fit the criteria that the, the um, approval authority would be way, way up and it probably wouldn't go. And I said, why do you think that they would be approved? And he said, well, if they were in this um, STEM program, might work. And I said, Okay, it's probably not going to work in this situation, but I like your idea about the STEM program. Let's look into um, starting a STEM program. I researched and found the um, DOD STEM director and got some uh, guidance on uh, how to stand up a STEM program and came up with a concept on how we in the 106, our unique mission and our unique situation, um, how could we teach STEM and tie that back to our mission. And it was a real easy concept for me to come up with. So what our STEM program concentrated on was we gave the kids a notional problem. Um, there was a humanitarian situation uh, that happened in Estonia, which was a place that we just happened to have traveled to um, several years ago and just had some plans on the shelf that it would be easy right. to pull off the shelf. So there was a situation in Estonia where people needed help. And so the kids were presented with a problem. They would have to mobilize a uh, hundred or so people with cargo and aircraft over there and then stand up the aircraft on alert using the maintenance piece. And then once it stood up on alert, then they would do mission planning, command and control, and then run a uh, tactical operations exercise to execute the mission. And then it would culminate in a notional actually flying the mission. And this would take place over the course of four days. And obviously, you can't teach every aspect of those, but you can teach the technology behind each of those major movements and then go out and get hands-on to actually do some of the stuff. So when you talk about moving all those people in cargo, you start with the technology, start with some calculations, some weight and balance, talk about the aircraft capabilities. And then they went out and actually, you know, measured and did weight and balance. And, you know, it was the hands-on piece that was 
really what the kids really loved. Let's focus on that hands-on piece now. How do you take that mission and through interaction with the actual aircraft, turn it into the kids becoming acquainted with what it is you really do, whether they're doing pre-flights, whether they're staging the rescue, and of course, the big payoff when they actually got to go airborne. Of course. In the maintenance piece, we had 24 kids. They were broken into groups of five, and they rotated through several different areas within maintenance. They did some troubleshooting. They were taught the technology behind finding cracks in in the aircraft, whether it's the aircraft frame or parts of the aircraft, using eddy currents and uh, something called NDI, non-destructive inspection. And then they troubleshot bird strikes. So they would go and look at the engine and borescope the engine and all of the technology behind that. There was a bird strike not too long ago. So the scenario is there's a bird strike and they have to fix it before they go and fly the mission. So they looked at the um, the structural piece and then did some hands-on with sheet metal, bending metal, all that goes into fixing a damaged aircraft. I want to take you, uh, Colonel, to the question of how you guys are engaging with the local community. You said you guys have been working this over the last couple of years, and we've heard from Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall, as well as the Chief of Staff General CQ Brown, that you know there's been... Unfortunately, in the wake of 9-11, access to bases became tighter, uh, giving folks rides uh, on aircraft, right? It become a little bit more bureaucratic. And it's that engagement that actually helps inspire a new generation of airmen, inspires people to maybe go into STEM, even if they don't put a uniform on. But it also has some very distinct uh, recruiting challenges, even though Air National Guard units and reserve units tend to do a little bit better than active duty at this point. Talk to us about how you guys are changing the way you're engaging with the local community. The 106 has a tremendous relationship with the entire region. In fact, it's the only military unit that a lot of New Yorkers come into contact with, right? I mean, they go to the beach and they see uh, an H-60 or a C-130 fly by. For many, that's the only military interaction they have in an area that used to be very military heavy if you went back decades ago. How are you guys sort of more broadly engaging with the local community? And what are some things that you need from headquarters Air Force maybe to make your lives a little bit easier when it when it comes to being able to do that engagement, right? It's great to have airplanes. The airplanes are flying. You guys are flying around the flagpole. It doesn't really matter if in the back you have community leaders, school kids, or anybody else. So uh, I appreciate that we are reaching out. You know, that community outreach and just simply getting the story out is step one. And it's been harder over the past few years to get the story out. And now with CQ Brown's direction and the secretary's direction to increase community outreach, that's just kind of the clear direction that we need to go. And, you know, it's just the right thing to do anyway. We are a part of the community. All of our members are all part of the community. So when we do community outreach, it builds the relationship. It builds support for the mission. And we need that support. And when we go and, and we talk to, um, you know, guidance counselors or civic leaders and build that support, in the end, if recruiting happens to benefit from that, then great. And same with the kids. When you reach out to the kids, you build that interest. When they see a C-17 fly overhead and they've done the STEM program, they know what went into getting that C-17 loaded. They know about fuel consumption. They know how much it can carry. 
When they see a C-130 fly overhead, they know what kind of training they're going out and doing. They know what went into the uh, mission planning. They know everything behind what's going on there. And they definitely build a huge appreciation for the mission and probably some interest as well. So in the end, the mindset has to be community engagement for the benefit of the community and for the mission. And then if uh, recruiting happens to go up, which it will, then that's just the icing on the cake. So where do you go from here? What's next in those engagement plans? And especially as you look at bringing more younger generation folks into contact with their military. So our next goal is to reach out to the local high schools and build some prestige with the STEM program, reach out to the local high schools and um, see if they want to compete. We, we had 24 in this last class. In the next class, I think, you know, we can get up into the 30 to 40. We had 41 volunteers participate in the STEM class to give the kids a great experience. And that's just for faculty and staff, not including all of the air crew and maintenance to, uh, to actually go and fly on that last day. In the future, like I said, I think we'll reach out to the local high schools to get some competition going on there. And, and because we can't have all of them, there's, you know, hundreds of high schools in Long Island. And then we've already asked for some more money from uh, the Department of Defense STEM program. This last program was a, was a pilot program. So we have some areas that we can fine tune and then hopefully we'll get a, uh, a little bit bigger budget for next year and get it a little bit better and reach out and give more kids from the local community the opportunity to participate. I have to say, I think it's terrific. Uh, I remember my kids getting up close and personal with the aircraft, uh, something that they'd seen on the beach whenever they're spending some time at their grandparents' house. Uh, and so you realize that it does have an impact. And, you know, again, I mean, nothing uh, better as a recruitment tool over the long term when people have that kind of interaction, they better understand their military, especially at a time when the number of people who are serving in uniform is actually shrinking, right? I mean, so the mission actually becomes even more important to engage, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And they build a huge appreciation for it. You know, there were some members of the uh, wing when they were briefed on the concept of the STEM program that thought, oh, wow, that is awesome. And can I, can I do it too? <laughs> because right. we do touch every single group within the wing and they get a real, a real good taste of what it takes to really save lives. And it gives people a good appreciation for every aspect of the mission, which even our own members, you know, haven't gotten that full um, sort of taste of everything that goes into it. And that's the other thing is we want the kids to know that, you know, it's not just individual technologies. It's not just one area of responsibility that you concentrate on. It's everybody teaming up to accomplish a mission. And that's what we have to offer that other STEM programs don't have. And that's, that is the real basis of the military is that it's a team effort. It's everybody, one team, one fight. And that's what the military teaches. And, and that's kind of the, the part that we're also trying to get across to the kids. Terrific work. Colonel Glenn Ware of the 106th Rescue Wing out at Gombreski in West Hampton, New York. Thank you so much for joining us on the Air Power Podcast. 
absolutely my pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity. Go 106th. And hey, if you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts. Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our new technology report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Maradian. And joining us now is Tyler Hacker of the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, one of Washington's most respected think tanks. His new report is drawing a lot of interest beyond precision, maintaining America's strike advantage in great power conflict, addresses the shortfalls and challenges of U.S. uh, and then by definition, allied munitions production. Tyler, thanks very much for joining us on the program. Thanks very much for having me. I want to start with the Ukraine war that is highlighting the fantastic rates that any state-on-state competition will be burning through. A sheer number of artillery shells. Uh, We've been running out of artillery shells, so we're giving Ukraine cluster munitions, even though they do want cluster munitions. There are a lot of questions about whether or not uh, we would be able to do what the Russians are now doing, which is every other day sending a barrage of 20 to 30 cruise missiles and probably the same number of long-range precision unmanned aircraft to sort of wreak havoc, and the Ukrainians have to shoot all that stuff down. So at some point, We will start running out of Patriots, just like we're starting to run low on Javelins and on Stingers and then squeeze our allies and partners around the world to to sort of get it. You maintain that we do not currently have the stocks of precision guided munitions sufficient to sustain great power conflict. Walk us through how quickly the United States effectively goes Winchester in the event of a major conflict, because Frank Kendall is the only guy who's been talking for a decade and a half. Whatever we get into might not be short and sharp, but actually maybe a prolonged slugfest, which is the historical norm for wars. Yeah, I I think the the question of how long until we go Winchester, that's kind of what we tried to get at in this report. And the way we, we went about doing that was by looking at not only past trends, but then five potential or hypothetical conflict scenarios between the United States and China. And so I think the question of when do we go Winchester, it varies by the scenario and by all the different assumptions that you, you take when going into it. But I think we, we, we split up the scenarios between some of the more rapid ones, the common, common scenarios that you hear about, like, you know, repelling an PLA invasion of Taiwan uh, or, or a contingency in the South China Sea. And then we looked at some of the more protracted ones. And I think the, the overall results and kind of the analysis showed that we could go Winchester, you know, relatively quickly, particularly in some of the protracted scenarios uh, that might last, you know, weeks or months. So, yeah, I think it varies by scenario, but I, I think it's pretty safe to say that that we do have insufficient uh, stocks of precision guided munitions. And your report also looked at the industrial base and how well equipped it is to fill those stocks and those right. uh, low magazines. How much of a gap is what we need from what we're producing today? And can the targets to supply not only ourselves, but our allies be met with today's industrial facilities? I think, you know, the finding of the report is, is that, you know, in one word, no, uh, there's pretty, pretty big gap between the kinds of production rates that you would need to feed these kind of campaigns in a protracted scenario and the one that we currently have. And so that's why one of the, the main findings of the study was there's a problem, but it's not a problem that you can very quickly spend or produce your way out of. So I think that was most interesting for us because it, the question is, well, if you can't, if you can't 
producers or spend your way out of it. What can you do to try and either use your current stocks and your future stocks more wisely or to reduce the requirements for munitions in, in total? And so what is the way to think through the problem, right? I mean, if you were thinking it through, what are the ways uh, to think it through? We thought about it first by, by going through those scenarios and looking at uh, some of the potential requirements and then some of the variables that you can play, the variables and assumptions that you can play with in those scenarios, like conflict duration or, or how effective uh, PLA defenses are or how many targets uh, you assume need to be struck in each different scenario. So that's where we started by um, looking at how those variables affected the requirements for each scenario. Uh, and then once we kind of had, you know, ranges, uh, quantity ranges at varying assumptions for each scenario, we looked at the, the ideal attributes um, of the different munitions that you would, you would want to have for each scenario and, and its particular target set. And so from there, we, we took those numbers um, and we kind of laid them on top of what we can glean about the United States current PGM arsenal based off, you know, budget documents and, and some of the open source things that are out there. And I think pretty quickly when we when we did that, you, you see that there's some pretty big gaps between not just quantity wise, but also capabilities that, that would be ideal for these scenarios. And so uh, from there, to, you know, to, to get to the root of the problem, we started looking at what are the different constraints at play. And of course, the, the immediate ones that, that come up are fiscal constraints and uh, industrial constraints. And given those constraints, what are the sort of other knobs you can turn to, to ease the problem or to, to make the problem more manageable. So DOD is purchasing something like 3,200 joint air-to-surface standoff uh, missiles, the premier standoff uh, weapon we have, and that's between sort of FY 2010 and 21. If you look at the long-range anti-ship missile, which is the naval variant of that, you know, we're supposed to have 400, I don't know, 50 or 60 or whatever the number is by 2026. Mm -hmm. uh, and in war games, we go Winchester, right? And that the JASM-ER and, and that are the most important weapons we have in the South China Sea. Even Tomahawk production, we, we burn through like in an afternoon what we normally would build in a year, right? I mean, it's only because it's compounded over time. How much more weapons do we need in the event of a crisis, because it would seem as though the stocks that we have are simply inefficient. Is there a number, where, especially when you get to those high-end systems, because the Chinese know how to count, right? And so right. ultimately, if you're like, oh, well, I'm supposed to have 450 by X, but I only have 250 now, right? They go, okay, well, that's 250 targets that they could attack at a time when they're kind of pushing us away from their borders. Yeah, I'm personally hesitant to put a specific number on it, but I think it's safe to say that it's a lot and it's in the in the thousands or potentially the tens of thousands. I think it calls into question, you know, if if we are only able to produce a limited number in the hundreds of these um, exquisite munitions, then, you know, we might need to rethink some of the approaches uh, to fulfilling those munitions requirements, whether that's rethinking, you know, weapon platform pairing and going with something that's shorter range, you know, and a little cheaper and easier to produce, or whether that's going with uh, munitions that just have, you know, more easy to meet industrial requirements. There, there just has to be, there's other, other avenues worth approaching uh, for how you solve that problem. Now, we've been talking a lot about today's weapons, but right. are non-kinetic systems a way out of this box? People say they provide a bottomless magazine, but what can't they do? And will they be similarly constrained in production? 
I think there's definitely a big place for non-kinetics in the in the defense realm. And you know, this report was very focused, uh, scoped down to just offensive strike. Um, but we do talk a little bit about non-kinetics. There's definitely what we saw. You know, we we considered things like a, a counter C4 ISR scenario where you're the United States military is primarily going after, you know, sensors and communications infrastructure of, of the PLA. And there are definitely a place for non-kinetics either to provide the effects that are needed for that particular target or in, in that campaign and others to play an enabling role and, uh, you know, somehow degrade the PLA's defenses and enable other munitions to be, uh, enable the survivability of other munitions. So I think definitely, you know, we don't get too, uh, too into the weeds on the specific uh, systems or effects or anything, but I think non-kinetics are certainly one way to, to get after that problem. Let me take you to uh, one of the things that you talk about, which is sort of the rethinking of the weapons enterprise. Senior U.S. and allied uh, leaders for some time have been talking about the notion of more modular uh, weapons. And mm -hmm. the Air Force Chief of Staff, General Brown, at the Royal Air Force's Air and Space Chiefs Conference uh, last year in London, uh, just before the Farnborough Air Show, laid out this notion that if we can get the architecture right, we can then have kind of a modular mentality. Mike Wigston, the RAF chief, has been talking about that a little bit, right? I mean, a number of theorists have been talking about it. The challenge has been integrating, sort of picking the right sensor, rocket motor, and what have you. But General Brown's point was, if we get the architecture right, whether it's for next generation air dominance or any, any uh, air launched effect, we will be able to distribute that manufacture worldwide as well. What's the way to sort of rethink this because if we have all of us trying to individually build these weapons, we're likely not going to succeed. But if we distribute the production of these systems, rocket motors in you know, kind of scalable ways, sensor heads that are integrated and work with any warhead combination, you actually could have a very powerful array of systems that you could build, couldn't you? Right. I think, you know, I totally agree with those statements. I think that when we're thinking about the munitions problem, a lot of it is confronting the the resource trade-offs of you know you you're trying to figure out what munition what mix of munitions is ideal for a broad range of scenarios and and where you can accept risk you know in in certain targets uh, and whatnot. So by having modularity, you're reducing the amount of trade-offs that you know military planners and procurement officials have to confront because. You're, you're procuring munitions that have modular components and can then be changed and be adapted to fill a variety of different roles across a, a series of different uh, scenarios. Now, your report is focused on munitions. We've been talking all about munitions, but you also address the relationship between the platform and the munition. Survivable mm -hmm. platforms, less capable platforms, have different munitions requirements. How should we think about the relationship between the dropper and the droppee? That uh, was really a, a point that came out towards the end of the, the study is that, you know, at the end of the day, the problem is you need to, you need to get an effect to a specific geographic place. And there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot that goes into that, but it's about where you know you have different components. You have payload, some kind of payload, and you have sometimes a propulsion system and you know sensors and all these other components. And they're all aligned typically between the munition and the platform. So you know 
uh, going back several decades, you had all the components basically on the delivery delivery platform, the sensor, a decision maker, propulsion, you know, in a, in a jet aircraft, and just simply a payload, you know, a dumb bomb in the munition and how that has shifted over time now where uh, you have a lot of those components, you know, propulsion sensors, payloads spread out between platform and munition. Where we tried to go with the report is showing that there's a whole host of technologies uh, out there that a lot of them have been around for quite some time, but you know they've gotten uh, a lot cheaper to produce and a lot smaller. You can go back and look at that relationship and how these components are spread between uh, the platform and the munition and try to optimize for, of course, the, the operational attributes that you want, but also for cost and for bringing a, the munitions portfolio into a, a, manageable, a manageable cost. So where that really comes out, uh, and we, we talked pretty extensively about it in the report is the range relationship. You know, the you know PGMs are great, but of course, the longer range they are, the more they cost, um, which creates a lot of problems in trying to procure adequate numbers of them. So if you can shift some of that, if you can either bring down the cost for extended range munitions via, you know, new propulsion, te propulsion technologies, things like that, that's one way of, of getting after that. Or by having longer range platforms uh, that are more survivable and then can use uh, less exquisite, shorter range munitions. Let me um, go to the industrial production question uh, once more. So there's been some criticism directed at the administration. Why is this moving so slowly? You know, why, why have the contracts taken so long? You know, why, why are delivery rates not achieving peak until 2024? Uh, and folks in the administration explain, look, we're not going to build, you know, yesterday's weapons tomorrow. Mm -hmm. We're going, you know, some of these are out of production. We need to re-engineer elements of it. We're moving as quickly as we can. There are supply chain holdups, right? So let's say hypothetically, Tyler, right? It is the right idea to go distributed and have a common architecture. That's not going to bear fruit for a couple of years. What is it that we can and should be doing right now to be able to accelerate this production and rates? Because ultimately, the Russians are playing a long game, just like the Chinese are going to play a long game. They are using every trick in their book to exhaust not only Ukraine's supplies, but by extension, our supplies. So if it takes us five years to replenish those stocks, there is no, you know, I mean, eventually you're out of Schlitz too, because right. we've worn out the Winchester reference, right? What is it that we need to be doing to get this ball moving faster? Because again, your adversary knows how to count. And if you're out of bullets, you're out of bullets. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I'm always cautious. There's definitely a push to to grow industry and to you know to to grow it and adapt it to to overcome these challenges. I think that you're exactly right. That is a it's not going to happen overnight. Um, and some of the expectations out there, you know, that the defense industrial base is going to be able to tackle these challenges in 12 months or less, I think are are a little um, unrealistic. So I think what we can do in the meantime, while while uh, while industry grows and adapts, is first think about what we have and think about the best way to accomplish the you know the objectives that we have and to provide the effects uh, that military planners are looking for with what we have. So I think you know there's there's a variety of ways that we could do that, and I think the U.S. military in the past has been pretty successful at doing things like, you know, targeting key nodes in, in adversary, uh, you know, air defense uh, architectures and communications architectures. So there's 
There's things like that. There's approaches we can use to, to use what we have more effectively. And then I think there's also some technologies that are here now and could be expanded relatively quickly. Um, a lot of it, you know, centers around these modular kits that can be bought and put on existing munitions or existing dumb bombs, sort of like the JDAM-like kits. You know, now they have um, extended range JDAM and, and some powered JDAM kits that are coming out. And the same thing that, you know, those provide different, different um propulsion methods for dumb bombs, but they can, the same kinds of kits could pretty quickly be adapted to provide uh, different kinds of sensors other than GPS guidance um, and, and things of that nature. So I think there's, there are things like that industry could turn around very quickly because they're, they're either already made or, you know, you're already developed or there are pretty quick turnaround technology wise. Well, the, the Russians are using washing machine, right? And consumer electronics right. uh, in their weapons, right? I mean, we could arguably do similar things, couldn't we? Right, exactly. That kind of gets into the whole looking at ways to expand uh, the uses of commercial technology in munitions, whether that's existing or future munitions. I think, you know, the Russians are doing it because in, in many ways they're being forced to do it uh, with all the sanctions and, and restrictions. But I think, you know, it, it would behoove us to look at uh, bringing commercial technologies into munitions uh, in any way we can to try and expand the industrial base and and the uh, the amount of technology that's that's out there. And again, as we look at the industrial base, the current facilities, some of them date from early in the Second World War. Can we run those facilities harder, or do we really need to expand the number of plants? I think it would be ideal to expand just to try and get get away from all the, you know, having these single points of failures, these single facilities that, you know, that are linchpins in uh, munitions production. But I do think, you know, if, if I'm remembering correctly, you know, there there is a big push funding wise to uh, modernize a lot of these facilities. So that is a good, good thing to come out of out of our efforts to support Ukraine. Tyler Hacker from the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. His report is Beyond Precision, Maintaining America's Strike Advantage in Great Power Conflict. Thanks for joining us to talk about it on the Air Power Podcast. Thanks very much. Thanks so much for listening to the Air Power Podcast. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, hey, please tell a friend. Special thanks to GE Aerospace for powering the whole flight. We'll be back next week.